I'm very much engaged in treating the person and trying to figure out their social learning system to be able to figure out how to teach them rather than saying, oh, you have a social problem. Now we're going to do an algorithm of a, you know, now we're going to teach you to say hi, and then we're going to teach you to ask for one thing or other, you know, like, let's really understand who this kid is. Welcome to the Tilt Parenting Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and today's episode features a conversation with speech-language pathologist and specialist working with kids who have social learning challenges, Michelle Garcia-Winner. Michelle is the founder and CEO of Social Thinking, a company dedicated to helping people develop their social competencies to meet their personal social goals. She coined the term social thinking in the mid-1990s, and since that time has created numerous unique treatment frameworks and curricula that help educators, clinicians, and professionals. I first heard of Michelle when a therapist we were working with suggested using her SuperFlex curriculum. At the time, we were dealing with the highly inflexible five-year-old boy, and I was like, yes, please, give me some of that. And since then, I've used many of Michelle's resources to work on social thinking with Asher. So I was thrilled to have the chance to talk to the woman behind it all. In our conversation, we talk about the concept of social thinking, what it is, why it matters for our kids, how it can be taught and learned, and much more. This was a fascinating conversation that's really relevant to all parents, but especially parents with differently wired kids. I hope you enjoy it. And before we get to our chat, a quick reminder to grab the new parenting SOS cheat sheet I put together on Tilt Parenting. I went through all 50 of my podcast episodes from 2017, and I pulled the 10 most powerful parenting strategies I learned from them and created a downloadable PDF with those strategies that you can print out and stick on your fridge. The mini poster features advice from Dr. Ross Green, author Jessica Leahy, executive functioning coach Seth Perler, and more. And it's designed to offer you kind of quick, helpful strategies. I also created six beautifully designed wallpaper quotes from these strategies for your cell phone, so you can grab some inspiration on the go anytime you turn on your phone. To download those and the cheat sheet, go to tiltparenting.com slash cheat sheet. Okay, that's enough announcements for this episode. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Michelle. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Debbie. Glad to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, you know, of course, personally, because I'm a big fan of your work, but I'm so excited to share your company, Social Thinking, and all the incredible resources with our community, because I think they are so relevant to what the kids that we're raising are going through. So before we get into Social Thinking and what you do, would you just take a minute to introduce yourself and tell us kind of who you are and what your background is? So my name is Michelle Garcia Winner. I'm the founder of Social Thinking, and I'm trained. I have a master's in speech language pathology, and I got into that field because of I was interested in autism. They taught a class in that in 1979 at my university, and so I started working with classically autistic, those with weaker measured learning abilities and very weak to nonverbal uh unable to produce language or weak language systems. And so I specialized in that for many years. And then 
ended up working with people in hospitals with head injuries and learning about higher order thinking and executive functioning. And I ended up then in the mid 90s, getting involved in Asperger syndrome when it first became uh, known through our diagnostic manuals. And that's where I found a need to create social thinking because I felt we needed a very different treatment approach for teaching about the social world for folks with solid to high level language and learning skills. Wow. So 1979, you're a pioneer in many ways. You know, I can, the conversation around autism must have been so different from what it is today. Oh, it was very different. There was no autism spectrum. And we were at that time deinstitutionalizing adolescents whose mothers had been told they'd caused autism. And uh, at that time, uh, there was just treatments were being founded, such as the TEACH model, Structured TEACH, which I participated in a model that was uh, really incorporated a lot of excellent structured teach information as well as humanistic behaviorism, where we really saw behavior as communication and we're really encouraging functional communication systems to help uh, minimize behavioral challenges. And so that's all that's what we focused on. And we only talked about autism and autism was as common as Down syndrome. And uh, it was hard to get people's attention to autism. And so to watch it dawn into a spectrum disorder that now is front page news is really remarkable to see those shifts happen. Wow. Yeah. And you creating social thinking before that was happening. It's such a great resource. And I'm sure so many families are grateful to stumble upon you when they realize that they're, this is something that they'll be working on in their own families. Yeah, I, I think now even with uh, the, you know, now add into all of this, just typically developing folks who are spending a lot of time on digital devices and not getting much exposure or opportunity for social engagement in the same intensity as as pre-digital ages. Now we're just facing more and more demand for how do you expose folks to social information and who have now anxiety or aren't sure what to do because they haven't practiced it enough. Mm. So fascinating. Well, yeah. So I remember when Asher was working with a therapist at the University of Washington Autism Center. He was probably eight at the time. And his therapist mentioned, I think the first thing she said was Superflex. You have to know the Superflex curriculum. And, and she mentioned your name. And she talked about social thinking. And for me, I was like, social thinking? I Yes. Superflex. Yes. Tell me more. You know, it just, I knew that it was something that I wanted to learn more about. And I had a suspicion that it was going to offer so many tools for me as a parent, parenting a chronically inflexible human being at the time. And someone who struggled with his social skills, I was so excited to discover the work that you're doing. So before we get into some of the details, what is social thinking? Can you describe that as a concept for us? Well, if we start with multiple intelligence, some people are really good at science and others, um, music, math, or overlapping intelligences. I think uh, at this point, most people would acknowledge our brain has many different types of capacity for learning. And so with social thinking, it was really a recognition that I'm working with a number of folks who have really solid uh, measured learning abilities in many ways, uh, most of them borderline to solid, and then many, many gifted folks, and then solid to strong language skills. 
but their brain doesn't make it easy for them to learn social information. So if you want to read about that, then you go into learning about social cognition and teaching social skills. And what I found was remarkable. And, and now, you know, 20, 22 years after I began to evolve all of this, um, I can I can explain it more easily now. But there is not a single field out there, whether it's in mental health or education or the therapies, OT, speech, um, behaviorism, that really studies the development of social cognition and forms treatments around social cognition specifically. Um, most communities around the world take it for granted how p- that people learn social. And because it's so easy for most people, we don't think it can be that hard to teach. So I was kind of dumbstruck when I was working with these high school kids in the middle of the 90s, and they started to come in with a diagnosis of Asperger's, or I just saw kids with social issues, as to how to help them in a way that they would receive the help. So so social thinking began with me trying to um, create social cognitive teachings, but talking about them in a way that my students could understand. So I decided to use really user-friendly language. And uh, so in a nutshell, social thinking is about teaching how our brain processes and responds to socially-based information, whether it's social cognitive information, such as theory of mind, or a, you know emotion-based information, and those two weave together. So, okay, I'd love to hear a little bit more about this idea of theory of mind and you know, I know perspective taking and what are kind of the key areas, and there's probably way too many to talk about, but are there a couple kind of main areas that differently wired kids in particular tend to lag in their skills with? Well, one of the things I noticed, and you know, this may resonate with a lot of parents out there is once families or systems acknowledge that a kid is weak in their social abilities, we tend to describe that as having weak social skills. And then we tend to put them in social skills groups. And what was striking me in the 90s was how how problematic these groups were because we were putting everybody with social problems in the exact same group. But even though the kids may be around the same age, they clearly did not have the same social problems. So your question, while it seems simple, is not so simple in the sense that one of the things I've done over the many years with the help of colleagues such as Dr. Pam Crook and Stephanie Madrigal is develop a scale of the social mind to understand different levels of social learning abilities in much the same way we assess kids reading and math abilities to figure out where do they fit in the learning cycle. And so when you ask about theory of mind, we have some of our students I work with who have have evolved into having solid language skills, even though they might have started with echolalic, uh, more echolalic behavior. They have very weak ability to think outside of their own mind to understand other people have thoughts different from theirs. And so those kind of students are going to begin at a very, very basic level. And you're going to tend to see that those guys also are very literal in how they interpret information, and they tend to have very poor self-awareness. Now, I'm talking about kids who are like six, seven, eight, nine, and beyond. I'm not talking about two, three, four-year-olds, because that's the formation of self. We don't necessarily have, we don't measure self-awareness so easily at that age, although it's obvious if you know, look for it. Um, But then there's other groups of kids I work with who do understand very quickly, I know your thoughts are different from mine, I just don't know what to do with them. And how do I account for them? So I, I realize you have thoughts that are different from mine. Some of my students, depending on their personality and developmental age, will 
realize other people have thoughts different from theirs. They just think people are idiots for having thoughts that are different from theirs. <laughs> so they tend to be very they be argumentative or dismissive or perceived at times as arrogant. So long story short, we have five different levels of the mind from neurotypical to the most limited and that there's different types of treatment because it's not theory of mind is uh, the building blocks of perspective taking and social cognition. So you have to figure out what challenge the kid has. I'm, I'm totally opposed to blanket treatments that are, you know, because you have a diagnosis, that means you get this treatment because it's just not that easy. And I saw that all the way back in, in the years of my work. And then it's, you know, who decides who's got autism spectrum disorders versus ADHD versus gifted uh, versus mood disorders. I mean, it's really complicated in the sense that I think we have more diagnostic labels than the brain has problems for. <laughs> and I'm very much engaged in treating the person and trying to figure out their social learning system to be able to figure out how to teach them rather than saying, oh, you have a social problem. Now we're going to do an algorithm of a, you know, now we're going to teach you to say hi, and then we're going to teach you to ask for one thing or other, you know, let, like, let's really understand who this kid is. But I think it's really important because as kids age up, we have some kids who have social learning, and I call it social learning problem rather than a social skills problem. Because I think if we just describe it as social skills, people just want their behaviors to change. They just want them to look more social. But you and I don't just look social. We engage in a social information processing system in our minds. We think socially. We think about ourselves. We think about others. We understand our feelings. We're trying to understand others. And it's a really remarkable process. And if you have social self-awareness, if you're aware that people have thoughts about you, which not all of my students do then they likely, my students who have awareness that other people have thoughts about them and they have thoughts about the others, they're going to get upset if you put them in a group with kids of a similar age or people of a similar age who don't have their same level of functioning. I've had students say to me, I could teach that kid social skills. I don't want to be in the same group with them. One of the really tricky things about social is social involves our emotional system. It involves how we think and feel about ourselves. It involves how we think and feel about others. So it, be, it becomes embedded in our mental health systems. It becomes embedded in our learning system. If you, if you don't know how to understand people have thoughts or you don't know how to perceive those thoughts or consider those thoughts well, you're going to have reading comprehension of literature problems that the social mind is not just used for producing social behaviors. It's producing, it's, it makes sense of our world. And when we're walking down a hall, who do you say hi to? How do you know who to avoid? How do you know when you've been bumped versus how you, if you've been bullied? And um, that's one of my missions in social thinking is to get, to help people see that this really, this, this learning system really deserves a lot of time and respect um, rather than people thinking, oh, we can just teach that during lunch bunch because it's not seriously academic. And it's like, wait, if you work with really literal students who are not aware that other people in the class exist, you're going to see that they don't have the reasoning and critical thinking skills to make sense of a lot of their curriculum. Mm -hmm. It directly relates to curriculum problems. We'll be right back after this quick break. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, 
Whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites? turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60tilt at greenchef.com slash 60tilt. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com tilt for 25% off. So just hearing you say all that, I'm getting filled with such a sense of urgency, you know, <laughs> and excitement. I, I think this is such fascinating content. And I have a lot of questions for you that came up in what you just said. One just quick question, you know, you talked about that this really taps into how these kids feel about themselves. Do you see that become more of an issue as they are in middle school and high schools, you know, when social currency is a little more heightened? Absolutely. You know, um, I'm, you know, trained as a speech pathologist and then self-trained as a social cognitive specialist. This is all very developmental. How we how we perceive others and read others' intentions becomes more sophisticated with age and then our own figuring out ourselves. Who am I? How am I different from my family? Um, There's all these different developmental ages across and you'll start to see kids become increasingly reluctant or aware of them, their social selves as they're aging up into adolescence. Uh, Certainly the middle school years are super tough. 
I was working with, I work with a 13 year old gal who's been school phobic and she's really afraid of growing up. And I was telling her, you know, I don't know a single mature adult who ever wants to repeat being 13 again. <laughs> like, it's really a horrible age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and of course, it's not a horrible age, but it's a complicated age. Yeah. Um, and you will see that across our lives. You know, it's I, I really specialize in adolescents, young adults and mature adults. And I'm working with a number of Silicon Valley. I, I live in in San Jose, California. So I work with a number of folks who work in industries that you're all familiar with, and they're employed as engineers or doctors or lawyers. And just the challenges across our different ages and how we're perceived, how we perceive others, and then emotionally process all that information. Here's some good news for parents. There's never a stopping point to learning. (laughs) And I I think parents at times get um, like, oh, he's got to have this figured out before he goes to college or before he le- graduates from school. He's got to have it figured out. And every one of our kids, if we focus on learning systems, we're going to just keep helping them get better and learn more about the social world than they had before. So our what is a successful program is one where we help a child get better compared to himself. They're learning more about their own thought and feeling systems. They're learning more about others. They're having strategies to cope with some anxieties. They're um, being able to figure out some strategies for relating to people that's comfortable to them where they can feel like they're not giving up themselves in order to be in a relationship or to participate in class. And that's that's progress is every year you get a little bit better compared to yourself. It's so true. I love that. And, you know, I'm just thinking with the younger kids, too, I imagine that you see some resistance sometimes or, you know, maybe kids who actually think they're quite good with social things. So when you when you say you want to work on these areas, they don't actually see it as a problem. But I imagine as they get older, and they start recognizing, oh, this is actually getting in my way, then they're more motivated to work on those things. Well, developmentally, younger children are usually they may not understand why they need it, but they're used to adults telling them they have to do what the adult thinks they need to do. So in that way, if we can find some treatment that's motivational for the students to help them in their learning, usually we can get younger kids to engage, even if they're not sure why they need to engage, because that brings up a whole other issue of the relationship between peers and adults. And a lot of these kids have very adult-like relationships, have have good relationships with adults or better relationships, not all. But as as you age up... um, if you're seeing that you're struggling, you may not see it in, by the, in the teenage or middle school and teenage years. You may not see that y- your struggles may be translated by yourself, the child, that everybody else is wrong because you're not at a place where you can really own that there's something you're doing that's problematic um, or just not sophisticated or you're not understanding. And so we have to manage through those developmental ages on motivational strategies to get them learning about this learning system without blaming and shaming, which I do think a lot of times we do in social teaching, especially for the more gifted kids or the ones who have a lot of language is people think, though they know better, they're just choosing to do this. Um, And so it's not until Often with many of my students, upper high school years into the 20s, depending on the kids, where kids and my adults are really coming back, taking ownership and saying, all right, I know that this is my problem and this is my problem because and so I want to work on this because 
part of the goal of treatment is to help kids get to that point where they can see that without feeling shamed or blamed to be able to work on it as a learning system rather than just do these behaviors. But it's, again, it's about developmental age. It's about awareness of the individual. It's about the level of anxiety and depression they're managing. I think that's part of my point in saying this stuff is not to overwhelm people, but to realize there's there's more going on than I think people are aware. And we often compartmentalize it like, oh, let's go to the mental health person for the mental health. And let's go to the speech pathologist for articulation and language. And let's go to the behaviorist if you need to learn a set of skills. And it's like, wait, we need to be way more holistic because all these systems function as one inside of ourselves socially. They don't function in compartments. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. So I want to go back to something you talked about earlier. So we talked about social skills groups. And, you know, that's something I had Asher in a year-long social skills group in Seattle because that was recommended to us. Um, I wouldn't say it was hugely successful, though he did learn how to compliment another child, you know, how to compliment someone Mm -hmm. else, which was new for him, just to notice what other people were doing. But, you know, you talked about, we don't want to put all these kids in one bucket, and they all are at different levels and working on different things. So what is actually the diagnostic process for you? What does that look like if you're working with somebody new? How do you figure out what they need Uh, to work on? So this is why you've mentioned that I have a lot of different materials out there on my website, socialthinking.com. We do have a lot of free articles as well as products we've developed. But in short, I'm not, we're not diagnostic in this, in the traditional sense of you come to us to get a diagnosis to figure out if you have a social challenge and what that diagnosis would be in the DSM-5 or whatever system you're using. But instead, what we're working on is, um, the majority of our clients have already have known social problems when they come to our clinic. And then we try to figure out what level of social emotional need they have. So like I I have this uh, article on our website for free called the social communication profile. And if you put it in your search bar, you should be able to pull it up social communication profile. And that's like a 32 page article where we explain different levels of the social mind. I have it probably, I've written it up in a little bit cleaner way in a book uh, called Why Teach Social Thinking, which connects a lot of what I was telling you earlier, the academic to the social learning and talks about why we use different types of treatments for different types of learners. But when kids come to me, I look at social attention. That's one of the first things I look at is how attentive are they to the social world around them? So um, if some of our students are just very spacey, that they're, they're very attentive to what makes sense in their mind or, the, or objects in the room, but they're not necessarily attentive to people. So that's one of the first things we look at because social attention starts with what they call joint attention, the ability to look to someone's face, see what they're looking at, make a guess about what they're thinking about. We expect children to be able to do to have a pretty strong formation of that concept by six months old and to have a very strong understanding of this concept, traditional uh, learners, by 12 months old, where not only are they joining in attention to see what what someone's looking at and and thinking about, but now they're reading intention and trying to figure out what people's plans are. And by 13 to 15 months old, kids are involved in what they call we collaboration, where now they're working together in little mini teams 
with the child and the adult to try to do some things together. If the mom has a problem with something like she dropped the broom in the kitchen, the kid may come over and pick it up and give it to her. And so what we're looking at when we're working with kids is how much is this kid processing of his social world, the 360 degree social world, which I call the landscape of social, like people around when people come in, exit the room or the activities that we play. And then from there, how does this kid communicate How effectively are they processing information? We have a series of tasks I've created that are informal. We call them social thinking's informal dynamic assessment tasks to just try to figure out what's happening in this moment spontaneously. Um, How is this kid processing and responding? How much time does it take for them to figure some stuff out socially? And it's remarkable that standardized tests, not a single test out there that I've ever learned about uh, in any field around the world as I travel globally, actually measures uh, tests with a standardized testing tool, how a person processes and responds to social information in time, like how quickly they do it. But the social world all exists, is the face-to-face social contact exists in time. It's, it's millisecond timing. And so if I have a student in my room, I'm not going to just put a standardized test in front of them that asks some questions like, what does this idiom mean? And then you can take as long as you need to answer it. I, we're going to put some tasks there and really start looking at how many cues do you need? How quickly can you get through this? Is, does it seem seamless? Is it labored? And that helps us start to look at some of these factors. Wow. Oh, gosh. It's also fascinating to me. Um, and just quick for listeners, I make sure that all the links to the resources Michelle's talking about, including the social communication profile, that those are all on the show notes pages. So just check those out and you can explore everything on Michelle's site. Um, as you're, as you're pausing, let me just mention that another article for your audience to look at is called the, um, cascade of social attention, where I explain as we're processing information, what's the journey? You know, our brain figures out the situation, the people, then it starts interpreting what's going on. And then we have social self-awareness. Who am I with you? And then for them, as we interpret all this information, me with you, then I figure out what I'm supposed to do socially. And in the cascade of social attention, we also define different types of anxiety that may show up based on how people are interpreting information. So that's another article. I think for parents, a lot of parents will say, okay, so teachers need this, but what do I need? And I'm like, well, you're actually with this child for life. And if you can start to understand how they perceive social information and make sense of it, it will make more sense to parents as to how to help teach. Mm -hmm. Because parents are teachers of social emotional information. Yeah, constantly. I mean, we have opportunities all the time, you know, in almost every moment of every day that we could be exploring social thinking. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, 
six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. So I wanted to ask you, you know, a few years ago, Asher was going to summer camp, sleepaway camp for the first time, and he had some concerns about it and what that was going to be like and being with a group and having to do collaboration and a lot of different things. And we worked on social thinking together. I ordered some books from your website and used those as I could, you know, kind of picked and choose things that felt to me to be most relevant for him at the time. But social thinking, your website, it's incredible, comprehensive, there's so much on there. So for listeners who are really curious and want to learn more, and want to go to your website, and these are parents, you know, where do you mm-hmm. recommend that they start? How do they navigate where they should direct their attention in light of everything that you offer? So let me build a bridge between kind of the conceptual information I've been talking about. How does the brain learn and process and respond to social information to teaching? So it's through through all this kind of, um, as I was seeing the complexities and learning about social, I started creating teaching for my students using what we call social thinking vocabulary. I started using very common sense language. What I found was people tend to teach, and I think this is usually what happens in the world out there, is people use words like cooperate, negotiate, show respect, be polite. And those are all really abstract words. I had students who were yelling, you're not cooperating when they themselves were the ones who were not cooperating. So they heard the word, but they didn't really understand the nuances of the word. So there was many experiences like that that led me to create language like, is your body in the group? Is your brain in the group? Think with your eyes, read the group plan, and just understanding how to break down the social world so our students could see it. So as parents come on the website, 
Really, first of all, I think parents in many ways are more knowledgeable than a lot of professionals because not a single professional is really taught this stuff. And we expect the speech language pathologist or educator, behaviorist, whoever it is, uh, mental health counselor to, to be your rock, to be your guide in this. And no one is taught this type of social learning information in their curriculum. Speech pathologists, so at least it's told to us that there's a field called social pragmatics, but most of us learn very, very little about it. And so what I found was that parents were, were really reading way more than professionals. So, you know, often I get the question about, well, where, how can we help parents because they're not professionals? And I'm like, well, to be honest, parents are learning more than the professionals are. And so I really encourage parents to read some things on our website, like the ILAF model of social cognition, just that breaks it down into initiation and listening and abstracting and perspective and getting the big picture and to just have some understanding of what the social world is about. I know everybody wants kids to just behave, be nice, be friendly, be charming to other people like I get to see you at your best, you know, at home at times. So I'm not going to say parents should just run to treatment strategies, because I, I think anyone who runs to treatment strategies, if you don't know what you're treating, we're all going to mess it up and we're going to end up going, you're not doing it. You should be doing it this way. Um, but on our website, we also have sections about different developmental ages, because this is a developmental process. If you end up in our product section, you'll see uh, some where to start information for younger kids versus upper, um, like the 9, 10, 11 year olds up into the tween and teenage years. So find, if you're interested in particular products, you will find that we have uh, different developmental age products for teaching. So I think one of the better, the, the more comprehensive books that parents can read and students can use, I wrote with Linda Murphy, she's another speech pathologist out there who started collaborating with me some years ago. Um, and it's called Social Thinking in Me. And it's a kid's guidebook and some handout and a book of uh, related lesson, little mini lesson plans. But I recommend to parents and professionals, if you want to jump into social thinking, just get a sense of how we explain the social world to kids, that Social Thinking in Me kid's guidebook. And then the related lesson plan gives you ideas about how can you break it down and ask questions. We wrote that for like nine to 12 year olds, roughly that age group. Um, but I'm often saying, hey, that's a great place now that now that it's out. It came out this past year to really jump in and, and get a deeper dive. But if you kick around our website, if you have four to seven year olds, we have curriculum, five story. We have uh, two different volumes with five stories each. Um, that, that anchor 10 core social thinking concepts between volume one and two for four to seven. You definitely can use that with eight-year-olds and uh, more immature older kids. And then we have things like you mentioned, Superflex, that we pair with social detective because we want our kids to learn to be detectives of their social world as, you, as we all are, and then be able to learn some self-regulation processes through that. So that gets up into the, our traditional U.S. Um, elementary school ages. And then in middle school, we have a book about learning about yourself and other through the social emotional, what we call social emotional chain reaction, how we affect others, how others affect us. And we have a book called Social Fortune Fate. So and then we have Socially Curious for Teens and we have a book called Good Intentions Are Not Good Enough for Adults. And all of these are pretty folksy reads. So none of it is written in university talk. 
I think my work is a lot about taking the research, which I'm a big reader of the research, um, along with, you know, my colleagues who work with me, and then translating it so people can start to make sense of it, and then giving strategies for treatment across executive functioning and perspective taking based on developmental age, as, as well as based on the kids' learning abilities. Well, thank you for reading all the research for us and breaking it down <laughs> for us. You can't read all the research. It's so massive out there. But I get into different buckets at different times. And then we keep learning. It is remarkable that we're in this, you know, we think of ourselves as so sophisticated in our, all of our learning. And yet this is a field that is not owned by any discipline out there, our social learning system. Um, if you want to go to somebody who really specializes in how man becomes part of society and learns to be part of society, you have to go to cultural anthropology. Right. But anthropologists are not trained as teachers. And so how do we cross, how do we carry this information between different fields and bring it together? Wow. Well, okay, so, so many incredible resources. And, uh, you know, we've used the social detective materials as well. But I'm definitely going to check out some of the newer resources that you shared. And I know that you have, you know, we're recording this right at the tail end of 2017. But I know in 2018, you have some exciting things coming up. So before we say goodbye, could you tell us what you have planned for next year? Well, for the last five years, we have been working on developing an e-learning uh, platform on our website to be able to share with the global community um, our trainings. And we have a video studio at our office. So myself and my colleague, Pam Crook, Dr. Pam Crook, and a few other people, are, are um, we've made a series of modules, and we're going to be launching that, I believe, around March. And it will have continuing education opportunities for those who are professionals in the United States but it'll be available worldwide. So if you want to learn about that, how to uh, see some of, uh, I do a lot of workshops out there. In fact, people find that the books are obviously helpful, but when they can hear me explain it through an organized talk, like today I've probably been all over the place, uh, they find that the training is very helpful when they can see a video of that. So just go on our website to our newsletter and you'll learn about when the e-modules the e become available for purchase. It will be a purchase-based system, but we'll also have coupons for discounts and things. And then we also, Leah Kuyper's uh, uh, book, Zones, is one that I published. And I know people are very familiar with Zones of Regulation. And I'm really excited. been working with Leah and two of her colleagues in developing a visual navigational tool that's uh, we're going to not call it a game we're going to call it a visual support but it's a way to take the concepts and zones and play them out on a board to really encourage navigating through a zone and uh, what does regulation look like and helping kids form concepts so those are a couple of the things we're working on Social thinking is always evolving. I didn't start this with a grant or a university placement. I was working in a high school and saw that there was a real gap in materials for students who have solid language and cognition. And we tend to teach everybody just through very behavioral methods, which can be very valuable when we know when they're valuable, but they're not necessarily valuable when you're trying to teach really sophisticated social thinking and uh, abilities. I think language and cognition are big game changers in treatment. So I've been evolving this work, and I'm lucky to work with many colleagues who helped me to evolve it. And uh, it, it just keeps going. We keep extending our teaching, as you've probably seen over the years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's so exciting. It's exciting work that you're doing. And it's 
optimistic for those of us raising differently wired kids to know that you're there and that there's so much great information for us to tap into. So I just want to say thank you for sharing so much with us today and um, just taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you have a very packed schedule, so I appreciate you making time to come talk with us. Sure. Well, thanks for all you guys do out there because it is a lot and people people really do have to put some energy into understanding social emotional teaching. And, and, you know, one of the things I'm really encouraging out there is we get frustrated when people don't respond to us in the way that we want. That's all over the world. But when we have our kids and we know that they have these diagnoses of ADHD or autism or gifted, uh, twice exceptional, it's how do we catch our own breath and step away and try to understand how they see the world so that we can all stay a little bit calmer and understanding that these kids' brains just make it a little harder for them to fluidly engage. And then how can we empower them with tools to help explain rather than expectations that they should just do it because they're smart. Right. Absolutely. Well, these are great resources for us. So listeners, again, I'll leave uh, all the links. We've talked about a lot of uh, different resources. I'll leave it all on the show notes page and be sure to check out socialthinking.com. And thanks again, Michelle. Thank you. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including links to Michelle's social thinking website, her books and curricula, and all of those and many, many resources that she mentioned on the conversation, visit tiltparenting.com slash session 94. If you like what you heard on today's episode, please consider taking a minute and heading over to iTunes and leave us a rating or a review. We're still in the top 20 in kids and family category. And honestly, it's just exciting to see this audience grow and the podcast get more attention. It also makes it easier for me to land those big guests. So it's a win-win. Thanks so much for being a part of making this happen. Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a super short note for me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and I always include links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. You can sign up for that also at Tilt Parenting. Thanks again for listening. And for more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.